following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Praise the Lord. Good morning again. It's good to see you. Now, you, you've heard that expression, uh, passing the torch, right? Is that familiar? Um, what does it mean? What's the idea behind it? Remember? It's kind of like a relay. Yeah, this uh, kind of is this idea, though, of you passing something on to somebody else, right? Maybe a tradition or an important responsibility or something like that. And, uh, yeah, the, the tradition came from... Uh, uh, the Olympics, actually, the Olympics in ancient Greece, uh, they would begin a, with a torch race in that Olympics called the Lampadodromia. And in it, there would be a, a lit torch that would be passed from one runner to the next. And the first to finish, the, the, the one to finish this race first would be given the privilege to light the Olympic flame, uh, something that the flame that would be going on for the rest of the games. Uh, it was a similar race. So, you know, we have today the relays that we see in the Olympics. But I guess uh, guys got burnt enough times grabbing the wrong, the wrong end of the stick that now they just use a baton instead of a torch. But today's Olympics, so we don't have this torch, re, uh, torch race, but there's what is called a torch relay that opens the games, right? Uh, normally it is, it's uh, something where they, they light a torch in Olympia, Greece, sometime before the Olympics, and then that torch is passed from person to person until it reaches the location of the, where the games are to be held that year. Now, this uh, torch relay was something that uh, has become quite an event. I don't know if you've ever seen one. I don't know if the 84 Olympics, you got a chance to see one running through town, but it usually attracts quite a crowd. Folks gather around to, to watch this guy with a stick that's lit on fire go through town. But it's become something of, a, of an interest and an attraction. And I, I looked into this a little bit this week, and I learned that the, the torch relay actually did not begin at the first modern Olympiad in 1896. Actually, it was about 40 years later. A man named Carl Diem, uh, he had seen some paintings of the ancient uh, Greek race, the Lampadodromia, and so he was inspired by that and wanted to come up with something in the modern games. It turns out that Carl was a German the first relay would actually be the 1936 games held in Berlin. And in fact, the Nazis actually used that torch relay as a means of propaganda. But despite that beginning, the passing of the torch during the Olympics has really it's become a visual symbol of uh, the Olympic tradition and the spirit of the Olympics being passed on from one generation to the next. And it's the same kind of passing of the torch that we see as we approach our next minor prophet, Micah. For Micah has now been handed a torch of sorts in carrying on the ministry that uh, Hosea had carried out. And before Hosea was Amos, and before Amos was Joel, before Joel was Elisha, before Elisha was Elijah. All of these prophets, prophet after prophet, carrying the message from God, a, a call to repentance, a call to seek forgiveness before judgment would come. And though the theme of, of each of the prophets that we've looked at and, and all the prophets in Scripture, the theme remains the same. It's this idea of, 
of recognizing your sin and, and turning from it. Though the theme is the same, the message or the manner in which it's delivered, the style, what's focused on, the heart of each prophet is a little different. And Micah, in this case, is one who's a prophet that's been handed this message. And Micah's one that's unfamiliar to many. Probably he's most well known for a verse that's quoted from him every Christmas. You remember when Herod was inquiring where the child was to be born from and the scribes around him told him. And they quoted from Micah 5.2. And that's when they said, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be from among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. That was a prophecy about the Messiah that Micah wrote. Uh, another verse that may be familiar to some is Micah 6, 8. In fact, there's a song written about it. He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice and love mercy and be, walk humbly with your God. That's from Micah 6, 8. But beyond those two passages, there's really little that is known about Micah. But the significance of his ministry can't be overstated. In fact, about a hundred years after Micah, he was referred to in Jeremiah's prophecy. Jeremiah twenty six eighteen says, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and he spoke to all the people of Judah. And the context in which that verse was given in Jeremiah describes the impact that Micah had on the people. Micah actually was probably the one most directly responsible for the amazing reformation that took place in the days of king hezekiah one of the kings of judah micah was really one of the few prophets that actually impacted his generation and also too if you think about it that passage in jeremiah i believe is the only reference to a prophet within the old testament an explicit reference to a minor prophet within the old testament Micah was no slouch. Micah made an impact. This minor prophet, Micah, was by no means minor. And so we're going to spend a little time to get to know him and his message. He is uh, one that has brought about a message that God gave him. And we want to look at what that message was. A message that God used in order to have impact among his people. And so this morning our focus is going to be the first chapter. We're going to look at the man Micah and what we learn about him, his circumstances, his background, his situation, and also to the message that he had for the people, the first message that we'll see from chapter one. So if you would please stand one more time as I read from Micah, we'll read chapter one. I will read it to you. Micah begins with the word of the Lord, which came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all it contains, and let the Lord be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will be split like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. All this is for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high places of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? For I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country, planting places for a vineyard. I will pour her stones down into the valley and will lay bare her foundations." All of her idols will be smashed, all of her earnings will be burned with fire, and all of her images I will make desolate. 
For she collected them from a harlot's earnings, and to the earnings of a harlot they will return. Because of this, I must lament and wail. I must go barefoot and naked. I must make a lament like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, for it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. At Beth Ephrah, roll yourself in the dust. Go on your way, inhabitant of Shafir, in shameful nakedness. The inhabitant of Zanan does not escape. The lament of Beth Azel, he will take from you its support. For the inhabitant of Maroth becomes weak, waiting for good, because a calamity has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the chariot to the team of horses, O inhabitant of Lachish. She was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, because in you were found the rebellious acts of Israel. Therefore you will give parting gifts on behalf of Morasheth Gath. The house of Aksib will become a deception to the kings of Israel. Moreover, I will bring on you the one who takes possession, O inhabitant of Marashah. The glory of Israel will enter Adullam. Make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of the children of your delight. Extend your baldness like the eagle. for They will go from you into exile. Now that is clearly Old Testament prophet language there. We're going to dig into that, but let's ask the Lord now to help us understand these words that Micah has spoken. Father, we do wish to know your word and Lord, know what you have for us from your word and understand its meaning so that we may apply it. May your spirit work within us now to give us that understanding and, and Lord, to move in us to respond that we would hear. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Well, as I said, this uh, first chapter has the look and feel of some good old minor prophet declarations. Before we dig into Micah's message and, and try to break that apart and understand it, let's first consider the man, the man Micah. Who is he? What are the times in which he lived? If you look back in verse 1, we're given some of that information about him. Right from the beginning, Micah says the word of the Lord which came to Micah of Meresheth. So that gives us indication and clearly shows us that Micah was speaking as God's prophet. And then he describes here, it gives his name, the word name Micah. And that's a fairly common one, actually. There's at least 14 other Micahs in the Old Testament. One of them, in fact, was a prophet in the days of Ahab, a different Micah than this one here. Micah is short for the name Micaiah. It's kind of like Mike, Michael. Micaiah in Hebrew means who is like Yahweh. Who is like God. Micah even ends his book with a really a play on his name. In 718 he asks the question to his hearers. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity? Micah, who is like Yahweh? I think it's a great name. Because every time you say the name, especially if you were Hebrew, understood Hebrew, it'd be say, stating, making the statement, who is like God? Hello, my name is, who is like God? And right from that very question, we're, we're reminded of the wonder and glory of God for who is like our God? Who is a God who is all sovereign and all knowing? Who is every place at all times? Who is infinitely good and loving like our God? Who is perfectly holy and just? Who is so full of mercy and compassion? Who knows all things like Him? Who is eternal? Who is infinite? Who is faithful? 
who always does what is right like our God. Indeed, who is like God? There's no one like him, right? Micah is a good name. Think about that one for your next kid or grand, grandparents. You know, maybe try to slide that one in if you can. Of course, in our culture, you'd have to have parentheses with what the name means. But it, it is a wonderful name because, again, it, it reminds us about our great God. Now, the only personal information we are given about this Micah, the prophet, is where he's from and when he lived. He's from a town called Morasheth. Um, I had a couple of charts and maps here just to kind of give understanding. This one identifies the location, Morasheth. It was probably uh, Morasheth Gath, which was located just outside a, a major Philistine city of Gath on the, near the west coast in Israel. It was a small rural town, much like a, maybe a town in the Midwest. It had fertile soil. There was farming, agriculture. Micah was probably a farm boy and grew up that way. I noted here on this map also Tekoa. That's a, another place where another prophet came from. Do you guys remember who that is? It wasn't that long ago, was it? The prophet. He's another rancher prophet. The prophet Amos. Amos. He also raised livestock. He grew up about 20 miles or less from Micah. Perhaps they came across one another's paths over time. But both of them were grown up, and both of them had had similar sensitivities. They, as we'll see in Micah's prophecy, there's a lot of things he brings out that Amos did. Social injustice, oppression of the poor, the abuses of the rich and those in power, bribery, greed. And like many other prophets, Micah wasn't disconnected from his message. He wasn't dispassionate or disconcerned from those he was speaking the message to. He was not that preacher who would just scream and yell with this uh, condemning, pointing finger at those he was speaking to. No, this prophet Micah was a man who cared. In fact, notice in chapter 1, verse 8. Or in the midst of, as he's declaring the judgment that is coming upon Israel and upon Judah, notice there that he breaks out and and interrupts himself really and says, I must lament, I must weep, I must go barefoot and naked, I must make a lament like the jackals and mourn like the ostriches or perhaps owls there. He's he's describing the, the distress that's on his own heart. This is a man that, as he reflects on the judgment to come, is deeply burdened. He cares. And these outward signs of of mourning and humiliation that he describes here in verse 8, again, comes from a heart that has empathy. Micah did not lash out in rage, but rather reached out in love. And notice in verse 9, he says that the judgment has come to the gate of my people. It's very important, that little pronoun there, my, because he didn't say judgment has come to the gate of those people or you people, but my people. And from this, we begin to see how Micah may have had an impact upon those who listened to him because he cared. And by his example, we too are again reminded that as we declare God's call to repent, as we speak of the gospel, and it's a hard message. It's a message that talks about God's judgment. It's a message that declares an eternity in hell apart from Jesus Christ. It's a message that calls people to repent and put their trust in Him. It is not an easy message, and oftentimes people don't respond well to that message. I sure didn't the first many times that I heard it. But notice here, Micah Micah shows us an example of how to bring that message. 
And we need to bring it not as if we've arrived, not as if because of our goodness and insight and ability, we've found the answer. We need to speak as a sinner saved by grace. Amen? One who is burdened for the plight of those who are without Christ. We need to learn from our brother Micah. In the words of James Montgomery Boyce, he said, More people have been won by honey than by thunder. Words of wisdom for us. It doesn't change the message, but it does make us consider how we deliver that message. And in addition to being a caring prophet, Micah was also a persevering prophet. For we learn that he, his ministry was during the reigns from King Jotham through King Ahaz to King Hezekiah in Judah. Probably at least 20 years that he was prophesying. And he spoke many messages in those days, in those 20 years. And I got a chart here. Actually, Ruth helped make it more decent. So hopefully this is a better. Thank you, Ruth, wherever you are. I appreciate it. Um, the kings of Judah are located in the lower bar going across there. Uh, I, I started from King Uzziah. He was before Micah's ministry, but uh, I'll mention why I meant bring him there in a second. And then the kings of Israel, the ten northern tribes, those are across the middle there, that bar across the middle. Notice here, too, these are the prophets that we've looked at. Jonah and Amos, Hosea, and then Micah. Kind of, again, the passing of the torch of God's message. And notice, too, Isaiah. He was contemporary with Micah and Hosea. I'm not sure why he got a bigger circle, but I guess that's because he has a bigger book. That's probably what's going on there. But this graph also shows that the prophets Jonah, Amos, Hosea were prophets to the ten northern tribes until Jonah went off to Nineveh. And Isaiah was primarily a prophet to the kingdom of Judah. But Micah was a crossover prophet, if you will. He had a message both for Israel and for Judah. And we see that even here in the first chapter as he addresses both Samaria, the capital of Israel, and also Judah, or Judah, Jerusalem, excuse me, the capital of Judah. Here we also see in this chart, it becomes important, we talked a lot about it from Hosea, that yellow there, uh, 722 B.C. was a key year. This was a year in which the Assyrians, if you remember, Hosea predicted it, he said it was going to happen if the people of Israel did not repent that the Assyrians would come in and completely devastate the ten northern tribes of Israel, which indeed later happened in 722 B.C. And Micah, during his ministry, was around at that time. He probably began his ministry toward the end of King Jotham's reign. Jotham was a good king, following in the steps of his father Uzziah. But the bulk of Micah's prophecy, the bulk of his ministry, took place during the reign of King Ahaz. He reigned about 16 years or so, if I remember right. Ahaz was not such a good king. In fact, it says he committed evil and was just as bad as the kings to the north in Israel. But King Jotham, again, he followed in his father's footsteps. But King Ahaz did not. And it says at that time that Judah became like Israel and the nations around them. And so as a consequence for their sin, there was no longer peace actually between Israel and Judah. Israel had made an alliance with Aram and during the days of King Ahaz had come into the southern kingdom of Judah and caused a war. 120,000 men died in one of the massive battles. And so for more than half of Micah's ministry, it was spent during the reign of King Ahaz, a time of great wickedness that had come in the land, a time when there was turmoil, a time when idolatry became uh, significant and strong. And if you look back at verse 1, 
Again, notice that Micah's ministry was to the north and south of the border between Israel and Judah. It says there, the word of the Lord which Micah saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Again, Samaria, the capital of... Um, Samaria, I've noticed there in Jerusalem, shows there that the capitals of each of the various places. The green area here is, this is the region of Israel, the ten northern tribes during the time of Micah and that time period, and then Judah. And I'll mention them again in a minute. But I bring these up because here he addresses specifically Samaria and Jerusalem. They are the capitals which are representative of the northern tribes and the southern tribes, respectively. So let's look at his message. What was the message that he delivered to them. Micah begins in verse 2 by saying, Here, O peoples, all of you. It's a reference to all the nations. He's calling all the nations to, to take heed, to listen. I have a message for you. God is coming. And his visit is not going to be a social call. He is coming in judgment, Micah says. He has a witness against the earth. Notice in verse 3, talks about God as treading upon the high places. He's speaking there of God coming as like a soldier, marching along the mountaintops, places that most folks would have felt were secure and safe, uh, someone that they could, somewhere they could run to from their enemies. But God says here, I'll be marching right through them. And notice in verse 4, he describes that the mountains will be crumbling, they'll melt like wax, and the valleys will be split apart. It'll be so massive, and, and it'll be swift like the rush of a waterfall. And in these opening verses, we see Micah declaring judgment upon all the nations. And it's very interesting because Micah uses the same approach here that Amos did. Remember back in Amos, Amos began his prophecy. His first message was a declaration to all the nations. He addressed every nation around Israel saying that judgment was coming. But Amos was a little tricksy. Because what he did was after getting the attention of his hearers, thinking about these nations and, oh, that'll be great. Yeah, these nations deserve it. Go get them, God. Then Amos flipped it on him. And said, Amos, or Amos said, God isn't going after the nations. He's also after you, Israel. Micah does the same thing here. He begins in these first four verses describing how God is going to come in judgment. And again, the hearers that Micah's message here would be probably thinking, nodding their heads in approval for God judging those pagan Gentiles. And then just as they're hearing these words of judgment, all of a sudden the next thing they hear from Micah is, all this is for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Did he, did he just say what I thought he said? Is he talking about us? Wait a minute, Micah. To see, Micah opens with this theme of judgment, not just against the nations, but against his people. And he says in verse 5, it was because of their rebellion. Notice his judgment, again, is not just aimed at the northern kingdom of Israel, but also the southern kingdom of Judah, as he identifies both Samaria and Judah in sin. And he focuses in on Samaria's judgment in verses 6 and 7. And then the rest of the chapter, verses 8 to 16, is focused in on Judah. On Judah. Now, Samaria was located on a hill. Um, Omri, uh, king of, he was Ahab's father, King Ahab's father. He established Samaria as kind of the political center of the northern tribes of Israel. It was located on a hilltop about three, 400 feet in elevation, overlooking the rich, fertile valleys. It's described here that it would be completely flattened in verse 6. And as we learn from Hosea, the judgment 
that he's talking about here is when those various Syrians would come through the land and completely destroy every area in Israel, and particularly Samaria. That would be the last to fall from the Assyrians. And notice in verse 7, he says, In that day, not only would their homes be smashed, but also the primary object of their sin, their idols would be smashed. They'd be obliterated. Micah refers to their idol worship using the same kind of terminology that Hosea did. Do you remember how Hosea described it? What did he equate their idolatry of the people of Israel to? You remember? Well, in the whole book, he called it harlotry, right? Adultery, immorality. And notice here, Micah uses the same kind of terminology. He says the wages of your harlotry will be given to another harlot. And what he's referring to there is that the wages, that is what you offered in your worship, uh, the silver, the gold, the clothing, the food, all those sacrifices, they're going to be taken by somebody else and given to their gods. That's what he's talking about there. Micah has this short but not so sweet declaration of his judgment, God's judgment upon Samaria. And at this point, again, in verse 8, he can't but interrupt himself as he's thinking about these events to come. And as he looks ahead to the events that face Judah, and he expresses his deep sorrow and mourning, just like his fellow prophets. They were all filled with grief, the consequences that the people would suffer. Remember Jeremiah? Who was he known as? The weeping prophet. The book of Lamentations is is simply that as he reflects on God's judgment and and writes about all of these sorrows and this discouragement in his heart for what is going to happen. Isaiah said this in Isaiah 22, 4. Therefore, I say, turn your eyes away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. Again, these prophets truly cared. I'm reminded of Jesus himself when he came to the gates of Jerusalem in Luke 13. You remember, he cried out a lament. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he pictured in his mind the day that would happen not that long in the future when the Romans would come into Jerusalem and completely destroy it. And so Jesus lamented that. The judgment was deserved, but they were discouraged at what was happening to the people because of their sin. And notice in verse 9 and following, Micah's lament here was not just because of what was going to happen to Samaria. He also says in verse 9, Her wound is incurable, for it has come to Judah. Wound there is just a reference to injury, that the judgment that was to come. And it was not going to be confined to Samaria, but would come upon Judah as well. Look at the end of verse 9. He says, It has reached the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. And here, Micah, what he's describing here and in the subsequent verses in verses 10 to 15 is not a metaphorical thing. It's not figurative language, just talking about judgment in general. He's actually prophesying a specific event that was going to happen in Judah. He is speaking of a time when there would be a judgment, an invasion, destruction that would sweep through the land and stop at the gates of Jerusalem. Now, those of you who are familiar with Israel's history in the days of King Hezekiah. What happened in that day when there was an enemy nation that swept through the land and ended up at the gates of Jerusalem, surrounding Jerusalem, ready to destroy it? It's the same answer we've been talking about in the last several months. Assyria! Assyria! They're at it again. After taking out the northern tribes of Israel, they continue to pick off nation after nation after nation. 
And after their conquest, after a key victory against Egypt, they then entered into Jerusalem from the west coast. They entered the land of Judah and began to take city after city within the land. That campaign, in fact, is one that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria at that time, he has inscribed in the annals, the Assyrian annals, which have been discovered. And there's a quote there from him that talks about how 46 cities within Judah were taken. They also took 200,000 prisoners with them. And he wrote there from that campaign, he said, And Hezekiah, I have trapped like a bird in a cage. Because Hezekiah, if you remember, was in Jerusalem when that army surrounded Jerusalem. It's a wonderful story. It's actually given in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles and also Isaiah. I encourage you to read it. It talks about Hezekiah's uh, trust in the Lord and dependence on him and how God delivered Jerusalem that day. 2 Kings 18 chronicles these events. And at that time period, after Assyria had defeated one of Judah's most well-defended cities, it was a fortified place, probably the strongest one in Judah, the, the town, the city of Lachish. And it is from Lachish that King Sennacherib sent messengers to Hezekiah. Now think about this. Here's a guy uh, Hezekiah is there and one day he gets this letter and these two messengers that come and on the return address of the letter it says Lachish and it's from the king of Assyria now what do you think the message there was from the Assyrian king to Hezekiah look I'm writing this from one of your most fortified cities in your land right Hezekiah would get it right if they went down it's not going to be long for us and those messengers that Assyria that Sennacherib sent said to Hezekiah, you need to surrender because it's game over. That was in 701 B.C. And it is that series of events that Micah is referring to here of a time when there would be destruction that would come through the land of Judah and that would end up at the gates of Jerusalem itself. And in verses 10 through 15, Micah addresses several of the cities that will be caught up and overwhelmed during that invasion. Those 46 cities that Sennacherib had written about? Well, Micah's addressing a handful of them here. But what is odd about these places that he picks in these verses is that they're not very well known, most of them. Most of them are rather obscure, of little import. The question is, well, what is it that draws Micah's attention to these specific places? Why does he name all of them? And why does he address these specific towns or villages? Well, one of the reasons, and I mentioned it a minute ago, let me get to the slide, is that uh, the cities that are named in Micah, uh, several of them have been discovered and identified. And of the ones that have been discovered, the pattern that was recognized is all of them are within 10 miles from Micah's hometown of Morasheth. So for one, Micah may be addressing those places that were nearby to him. Secondly, again, that part of Judah would be the part that the Assyrians first entered into as they begin to sweep through Judah. Those would be the first places that would be overtaken by them. But I think there's one other reason, probably the most significant one, and that is in the names of these places. Because Micah takes the name of each of these places and, and does a wordplay on them. He employs a pun for each town. There's something in the name of each town or, or a word that it sounds like in Hebrew that Micah plays off of. For example, look at verse 10, uh, the city that's mentioned there, Beth Afra. It's, uh, and he says to them, roll yourself in the dust. Now, Beth is a Hebrew word for house. 
And Afra is a word that, Afra is a word that means dust. And so literally, this town's name is House of Dust. And notice Micah says, House of Dust, roll yourself in the dust. And that was a sign of, of mourning, of grief. If you experienced a tragedy, you would throw dirt on yourself or you would roll in the dirt. That was a, a custom that took place in those days. And so in that message, Micah is saying, Bethlehem, there's a time in your future where there'll be coming destruction, where you will mourn in the dust. It's a play on words. It's kind of like today, if I were to say, in Los Angeles, you will find no angels. Or nothing is holy in Bishop. Now, I'm not saying, I'm just as an example. I'm a, any of you from Bishop, I'm not making a... Or if I were to say, Tahunga, your tongues will hang out for thirst. That's yeah, reaching, but you get the point. Or there will be darkness in Sunland. Now, see, you guys laugh because you get that. You see the connection. I'm playing on something in the name of the place and drawing upon that. That's exactly what Micah is doing here. It's just we don't know Hebrew. And so it's more difficult to see those connections. And so what I want to do is just take real briefly, look at these cities and see the connections that he is making. Perhaps then the overall thrust of his message will be more clear as we see what he is getting at and focusing on. And so uh, I've put together a table. I'm not going to walk through this like a lecture and point out everything, but this will be on the website. You can look on it there. But what I wanted to do is at least collect these places uh, on a table and then let you know, indicate the, what, the, what the place name means or what the name sounds like, another Hebrew word, and then also uh, what the message was that he was declaring. What I like to do is just briefly look at these because I think you'll begin to see a pattern as we, we look at each of them. Micah begins in verse 10 with the statement, tell it not in Gath. Now, Gath does sound like a Hebrew word that means to tell. And so one could take it first as the idea, tell it not in Telltown. But there's another significant aspect. Someone else said, tell it not in Gath. In fact, they gave it as a part of their lament over the death of Saul and Jonathan at the hands of the Philistines. You remember who that was? King David. Back in 2 Samuel 1. And as an expression to the people of this idea of, tell it not, Gath was, by the way, one of the key cities in Philistia. So the point he was saying is, tell it not in Gath. Don't let our enemies know the victory that they have achieved over us, or we will be embarrassed and shamed. So tell it not there. And it became a proverb, really, of when anything bad would happen in Israel, to let not their enemies know. This was so terrible. Tell it not in Gath. Again, Gath also Sounds similar to the word that means to tell. So tell it not in Telltown. Don't let them know. Again, the next city Micah addresses, we've looked at already, Beth Afra, House of Dust. We've talked about that. The third town in verse 11 is a place called Shafir. And that is a word that means beautiful or pleasant. But if you look at what Micah says to them, it's going to be neither beautiful nor pleasant what's going to happen or he says there, you're going to be ushered out of town in shameful nakedness. And the idea was that was a picture of those going into exile as prisoners. Usually they were stripped down to their sackcloth and walked away in shame. The next town he mentions in the middle of verse 11 is Anan. It sounds like a Hebrew word which means to go forth, to go out. And Micah says to them, the judgment to their inhabitants would be, you will not be able to go forth. Going forth, town will not be able to go forth. The idea there of being they won't be able to escape. You'll be trapped. 
Bethazel is the next town that he mentions, and that literally means a house beside, the beside house. And the idea there is just the neighborly idea, and that is if you're looking for a place of security or help, you go to the house beside. But here Micah says in verse 11, it will literally not be a place to stand, meaning it will not be a place to go for protection. House beside town would not be beside in the time of need. Verse 12, Micah speaks to those in the town of Maroth who were hoping for relief or good, he says there. And that word for Maroth sounds like a Hebrew word, Mara, which means bitter or bitterness. Rather than experience the good, Micah says, you will taste bitter defeat. That's the idea. We've already talked about Micah's next city in verse 13, Lachish. Again, that was a, the most fortified city in Judah. They've, I think, discovered uh, parts of it now. The walls were 20 feet thick. An impregnable fortress, or so they thought. And uh, I didn't mention it earlier, but Sennacherib, when he came into Lachish and defeated it, he was so pleased with that triumph, he actually had made these pictures that were put on the walls of his palace. They've discovered them. If any of you are in London and want to go to the British Museum, you can actually see them. They are uh, what are called bas-reliefs. They are these pictures on alabaster of this victory in Lachish. Sennacherib was very pleased. And Lachish, interestingly enough, it sounds like the word a word that refers to a team of horses. Lachish was even known as a place that had many chariot horses and was known for them. And so Micah plays on that, plays on the, what their name sounds like and what the city was known for. Notice in verse 13, he begins with the phrase, Harness the chariot to the team of horses. But the irony here is that that act would not be to harness the chariots for battle, but to run from battle. Because they were going to be wiped out. Verse 14. Micah then names his hometown, Morsheth. And that he says there that parting gifts will be given on its behalf. And what's interesting is Morsheth sounds like the name or word that means betrothed. Here are the parting gifts or really the idea of a dowry. And what Micah's pointing out here is that in an ironic twist, the city betrothed will be given to another, to their enemies, as a dowry. And the next town, Akzib, comes from a word that means lie or deception. And he says here that Akzib will be a deception to the kings or rulers of Israel. And I think what he's getting at there is that if they were to look to the town of Akzib for help in this time of judgment and invasion... It will be a deception to them because they would find none. Then in verse 15, now there's a point to all this, by the way. I'm going through these cities for a certain point we'll get to in a second. Verse 15, Micah addresses the people of Marashah. That word sounds like a word that means one who takes possession, one who conquers. And notice what he says to them there in verse 15. He says, the one who takes possession, I will bring on you the one who takes possession, O inhabitant of Marashah town of one who takes possession there will be one that will come and take possession of you and finally the last town that's mentioned is adullam at the end of verse 15 what's interesting here there's no play on words with this place actually it is uh, a place that was known about during the days of king david it is a place that david retreated to from the hand of saul it was a place that he went and hid there were caves in adullam that he went in order to find protection And here Micah really bookends these verses, verses 10 to 15, by starting with a place that's connected to David and ending with a place that's connected to David. And here he says, like David ran and tried to hide in Adullam, so too the leaders of 
Israel, Judah in the day that judgment comes, they too will run and try to hide. So in looking at these places, hopefully there's a little bit clearer understanding of what Micah was doing here in, in these verses in 10 to 15. But in stepping back from this list, we have to ask, why does he do this? Why mention all of these different places? And why the puns? What is the importance of that? What is he doing here? Micah's not just emphasizing the devastation that was to come. He's also conveying an important tone and theme here. There's a focus that he wants to draw the attention of his hearers to. All throughout, right, Micah talks about, focuses on shame and mourning, humiliation, suffering. I mean, you get to the end of this list and you're not feeling very bright and cheery. I mean, all the things that he's had to say to this point, all the references to these various places and using their name to describe what was going to happen in the judgment. By the end of this list, you're going, well, I feel good. Thanks, Micah. But see, Micah is skillfully making a point here. He's skillfully moving them to understand, you know, good times were not coming. Good times were not ahead. Because remember, he's speaking to a people who probably were still basking in the glow of the glory days of King Uzziah and his son, King Jotham, when there was prosperity, when there was security, when there was blessing, because those were good kings and God had blessed the land in their days. And so there would be a feeling of of apathy, right? And so to shake them from that apathy, Micah paints this mural, if you will, of town after town after town. That would suffer devastation and leave the people in great mourning. And he caps it all off in verse 16, where he says to them, to the people of Judah, make yourself bald and cut off your hair. He wasn't starting a new movement there. That was a a sign or an expression of grief. It was an act of self-humiliation in times of tragedy. He says, make yourself bald, cut off your hair as bald as a vulture. That's the idea. And this call to shave their heads will be done in response to what? Notice there in verse 16, what was going to happen in their future? Their children were going to be taken. And in fact, that is exactly what happened as the next generation was the one that would experience the Assyrian invasion through the land of Judah. That was the one when Sennacherib noted that he took more than 200,000 of them as prisoners, their children. And so all throughout these verses, Micah is giving these descriptions of of shame, of defeat, of mourning, of suffering, of humiliation. Walter Kaiser points out that there are at least 10 expresses of mourning and distress in this chapter. But again, we come back to, well, what's the reason for that? Was it solely because of the calamity that was to come upon them? Was that the real problem Micah was focusing on? What were they really to be in deep grief about? You got it. Chapter 2, Micah, the rest of his message, which we weren't, didn't look at this morning, we'll look at next time. Micah 2, the second part of his message, Micah points out their great and many sins. You see here what he's doing. The thrust of the first part of his message here in chapter 1 wasn't just over sorrow over the judgment to come, but grief for what has brought about that judgment. You see, their laments were... Not simply to be over what was going to happen to them, but more importantly, what they did to cause it to happen. Their children were going to be taken away because of the sin of their parents and grandparents and their own sin. Cities would be lost. 
destroyed, ruined, as Micah points out here, all because of the evil that they had done and the refusal to turn from it. And so these consequences were given so that they would recognize one thing, the disgrace of their own sin. That was the great tragedy. And so as Micah names city after city and village after village and what was going to happen there, he's making this point. Oh, the terrible outcome of our sin. Oh, the shame of what we have done, the disgrace of the iniquity we have committed. That's what he wanted the people to understand. That's what he wanted them to grab. And and that's why he used this, this literary device on these various puns in order to draw their attention to that. These many visible expressions that he gives, rolling in the dirt and shaving their head and weeping and lamenting and wailing and mourning, these are all outward signs of someone in great distress. And these were to be the same kind of humiliating actions that one would take as they mourned over their sin. And we see that in Joel. You remember Joel, right? Way back when we looked at him. And remember Joel came at a time of great tragedy within the land? Now, first hour blew it on this one. I want to see how good you guys are. What was the tragedy that came about in Joel's day? You remember? Yeah, you guys, A+. One person answered me first hour. Yeah, the locust plague, right? Totally wiped out the land. He described, you know, the first wave of locust eating this, second wave of locust, and it's like this picture of just complete devastation. Now, what? how did the people respond to that? Were they happy about that event? No, not at all, right? There was great mourning and despair. What are we going to do? Look at what's happened. And then Joel comes upon the scene. And God prompts him to speak to the people. And while the people were mourning over what happened, Joel says to them, direct that mourning, not just to what has happened here, but what caused it to happen. Your sin. In fact, over and over, especially in the first chapter, Joel says to them, gird yourselves with sackcloth. That was, again, a means of displaying sorrow. Wail and mourn and lament. Be ashamed and and weep. And again, he meant not because of the tragedy that has come upon the land, but the tragedy that exists within your very own hearts. I think of Daniel. Remember Daniel when he prayed for the people at the end of uh, the 70-year exile? Daniel was reflecting on the sins of him, the sins of his people. And he says this in Daniel 9, 7. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us, open shame. And then he repeats that. He says again, open shame belongs to us, O Lord, because we have sinned against you. You know, I have to say that this type of response to sin has become lost in our day, hasn't it? I think even in our churches, not just in our culture. You know, sin isn't really that big of a deal anymore. Sin just doesn't seem to matter. I think senses have been dulled in our land. I think maybe even for some of us here. You know, and we might look at a passage like in Micah and, you know, all this Old Testament language and all that mourning and sackcloth and lamenting and and wailing and shaving their heads. I mean, that's all Old Testament stuff. That's what they did back in their day as kind of an expression of sorrow for sin. That's not something we need to do. We don't have to be emotional like that and do these strange actions. Again, it wasn't really the action is the issue, right? It was that those actions were to reflect 
heart, right? Joel even said, rend your heart and not your garments. And I think as Christians at times, we might think or others might say, you know what, for Christians, we don't need to feel guilty all the time. We're forgiven. And I think I've mentioned to you before different examples, but there have been many times that talking to someone about forsaking a sin in their life, and I hear these words, yeah, but God will forgive me anyway. And you know, the anyway is the word that bothers me there. Right? God will forgive. He will forgive. But to presume upon that and to diminish the, the disgrace and the shame and the evil of our sin. Yeah, evil. Because, you know, God's going to forgive me. Every sin, all sin is horrendous, a horrendous offense against God. And, you know, I think as I think about this, even the sins in my own life and and how I almost betray the same kind of attitude. Yeah, God will forgive me in my lack of feeling shame and sorrow over my sin. I've become too familiar with it. I think I think we sin so much that it, it just, oh, yeah, you know, I'm a sinner. Almost as if that makes it okay. And I know we wouldn't say that explicitly, but at times, do we not think that? Yeah, I've sinned. God forgive me. Okay, you know, what's for dinner? I mean, that, again, not necessarily we need to run outside and start rolling around in the dirt, you know, and getting a shaver and do that. But but is that where our hearts are at? Do we really reflect on it and think about it and respond in that way? All sin, again, is a horrendous offense against God, but how much more so if you're a Christian? Because you know what that sin cost. You know what Christ did and what he went through to pay for our forgiveness. You know how holy and pure God is. You know how much he loves you. The wounds of an enemy can be endured, but not so the wounds of a friend. You know, I think a believer's sin cuts deeper into Christ than that sword that pierced him on the cross. And all the more, should we not be ashamed for our sin? And all the more, should we not mourn over it? Let's not let our senses be dulled. Let's not read a chapter like this in the Old Testament and how Micah was was moving the people and drawing them to understand and, and, and the sorrow and shame that he wanted them to, to feel and to embrace and to accept because of their sin. Let's not read over that and just move on without reflecting on ourselves. I think about the, that woman in Luke 7. Remember the Jesus was dining with the Pharisees. He was at Simon the Pharisee's house. And this lady comes in. Who they referred to as the sinner. And she comes in. You remember what she did? All those eyes were looking at her. The condemnation and the self-righteousness. And she walks in. She's standing behind Jesus and she's weeping. Remember that? And her tears were falling to the ground and they fell on Jesus' feet. Do you remember what she did? She got down. She wiped them off of his feet. Do you remember what she used to wipe them? Her hair. And she stayed there weeping and she had perfume that she poured. This wasn't the time of Mary of Bethany. That was later. This was another time, another woman. And she's there at his feet, just It's humiliating, degrading, shameful. And again, remember where she is. All these self-righteous men looking at her in disgust. 
But you know what? She didn't care. Why not? Why didn't she care what they thought or what it looked like? Because she was overwhelmed with the shame and disgrace of her sin. And she understood what she had done against the good and holy God and knew that this was God's son sent to the world. Her heart was broken. And that was all she could do to express the sorrow that was on her heart to be at Jesus' feet, wiping them with her hair. Beloved, let's be found at those same feet. Let's have that same contrite heart. Let us be ashamed for our sin, the sins that we do or that we say or that we think. Not so that we would wallow in guilt and despair, but so that we would be freed from it. Do you remember what Jesus told that woman? Did he kick her out? Did he scorn her? What are you doing? This is embarrassing me. Get out of here. Do you remember what he said? You are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And if you desire to experience salvation and peace with God, you need to come to God just like that woman did. Admit your sin. Embrace the fact that it is shameful and disgraceful a God who made you, He created you, He sustained you, He cares about you. Go to Him and confess that sin. Admit it. Desire to turn from it, to follow Christ, and to depend and trust only on Him for your salvation through His death on the cross that pays for your sins if you would but believe. And trust in Him And you will hear those same words. You are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Brothers and sisters, if you want to maintain that unhindered fellowship with Christ, if if you want your love to stay fervent for Him, if you want your witness to remain untarnished, then always see sin for what it is. And be ashamed of it. And have a heart that is quick to confess and repent. That's what John told us, right? Confess your sins. Present tense. When they come up, deal with them. Have a heart that is quick to repent. So that that fellowship can be maintained with the God who loves us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, it is sobering. I thank you for the reminder this week just for me, Lord, as I reflect on my sin, Lord, and and at times how casually I treat it. Forgive me for that. I know that you've forgiven me and I'm your child and you've adopted me and, Lord, glory awaits. But let me not take that for granted and and presume that, that my sin then isn't that big a deal anymore. I pray for us, Lord, that... Father, make us sensitive to our sins. When you bring other people in our lives that point them out, whether they do that in a good way or not, Father, may you, by your Spirit, work in our hearts. Just show us any areas that need to be dealt with. Lord, may we, like David, come with a broken and contrite heart. May we be like that woman who came in shame and tears so that we may experience full restoration with you. Thank you that you are forgiving and thank you that you are so patient, you're compassionate. 
I would ask as your heads are bowed if uh, we could prayerfully sing the chorus and turn your eyes upon Jesus just as a reminder for us. Lord, focus us on the Lord Jesus. For in Him we can have victory and peace and salvation. In His name we pray. Amen.